The Scotiabank Women Initiative is a signature program designed to increase economic opportunity for individuals who identify as women or non-binary to be successful now and in the future. This unique offering helps women pursue their best professional and financial futures by providing unbiased access to capital and tailored solutions, bespoke specialized education, holistic advisory services, and mentorship. For more information, visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com. Welcome to the Startup Women Podcast, a show where we connect you, Canada's powerful cohort of women-identifying founders, to real stories and case studies of women-building businesses, supported by true, tactical advice from thought leaders and industry experts. I'm your host, Kayla Isabel, CEO of Startup Canada. Each month, I'll be sharing the mic with one founder and one expert. Together, we will dive into real stories and scenarios and uncover actionable advice for women entrepreneurs across Canada. From funding and hiring to sales and scaling strategies, on this show, we cover the most important topics so you can deconstruct the challenges of starting and running a business with knowledge that goes beyond the surface level. Let's get started. Startup Canada's head office, located in Ottawa, is situated on the unceded, unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe Nation. Startup Canada recognizes the inherent and treaty rights of Indigenous peoples. We acknowledge the ancestral and unceded territories of First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. The Startup Women Advocacy Network, SWAN, is a curated group of 11 women-identifying, early-stage entrepreneurs who advocate and champion the needs of women entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast. Compass is a holistic mental health platform for institutions that seamlessly helps connect students to resources on and off campus in a personalized way. Compass's co-founder, Livia Hahn, is passionate about transforming the way we approach and talk about health through blended ancient wisdom, modern science, and accessible language to help us live to our fullest potential. We are delighted to have her as our Ontario SWAN representative. To learn more, check compass.ca. Pathfinder 365 is a digital community marketplace that effectively connects tourism businesses with tourism seekers. By harnessing the collective benefits of a marketplace, an interactive map, a dynamic suite of tools, and an ethical algorithm environment, Pathfinder 365 is positioned to become the most influential digital aggregator for the local and micro-tourism industry. Founder and CEO, Connor Phillips, is passionate about making a positive difference for Canada's tourism sector. We are proud to have her as our Saskatchewan SWAN representative. To learn more, visit pathfinder365.com. To learn more about SWAN and the amazing work of these women founders, head to www.startupcan.ca slash startup dash women dash advocacy dash network dash 2023.
On the show today, we are thrilled to have Ivy Wong as our featured founder. Ivy is a successful Canadian entrepreneur, philanthropist, and publisher in the world of digital media design. In 2010, Ivy launched Ripple Digital Publishing to publish ebooks and produce educational apps for children. In 2013, her first book, Red Is, was published to great acclaim. The book won the gold prize for the best children's illustrated ebook of the Independent Publisher Book Awards and the bronze prize for Moonbeam Children's Book Awards. Ivy is passionate about giving back to the community and inspiring creativity. Having volunteered at various charities and having educated future creative leaders over the years, Ivy wanted to make more impact with her efforts. To take her passion to the next level, Ivy launched a nonprofit initiative, Kids Write for Kids, KW4K. With the success and momentum generated around the program, Ivy created Ripple Foundation, as a platform to bring together others with similar passions and to develop future creative leaders. Today, Ripple Foundation serves communities across the country and children and youth at various stages of their writing journeys. I think the nonprofit space need to start fostering uh, a cultural of mutual support, uh, particularly for smaller charities. I mean, it can be challenging for small organizations like ourselves to secure funding despite having impactful, transparent, and efficiency program. Uh, because this is because it's lack of connection or visibility, and it's not because of lack of merit or potential impact. We are also joined by our topic expert, Megan Poole. Megan is the Manager of Community Relations and Communications at The 519. The 519 is a City of Toronto agency and registered charity, and one of the most prominent 2SL GBTQ plus community centers and multi-service agencies in Canada. The 519 is dedicated to the health, happiness, and full participation of the 2SL GBTQ plus communities. Megan oversees community and stakeholder relations, as well as communications, working collaboratively and with passion and empathy at the center of her work. Megan is also a member of the leadership team for Women Win Toronto, an organization designed to train and prepare women, women identifying and non-binary folks to run for municipal office. In 2019, Megan joined the office of the city councilor, Kristen Wong Tam, and most recently took on the role of manager of outreach and strategic initiatives. Megan has spent over a decade as a professional actor and holds a deep passion for the arts and theatrical performance and a flair for musicals. More nonprofits need to start incorporating um, diversity, equity, inclusion practices, both externally and internally, um, and making sure that you're investing as much into your staff as you are into your external kind of image. Welcome to the show, Ivy and Megan. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Awesome. So I am so excited to dive into this topic, not only because I'm passionate about nonprofits and activism, but also because I selfishly run a nonprofit, which is Startup Canada. So I've got some thoughts on this topic. <laughs> I would love to uh, you know, see what, what journeys you've both been on in working in the nonprofit and charity space, because holy moly, it is quite an incredible space to be in. So Ivy, I want to kick things off with you. Can you take us back to the very beginning of the Ripple Foundation. We talked a little bit about it in your bio, but why did you want to start it? What really inspired you to lead change in this area? Bring us back to the infancy of that business. Absolutely. Well, the story of Ripple Foundation started back in 2012. Um, so I had two successful companies, Splash Interactive and Ripple Digital Publishing. 
And these two ventures gave me really deep insight into the power of digital solutions and world publishing. Um, so these business success was very gratifying, but I really wanted to desire to contribute to back to society in a bigger way. Um, so my nonprofit initiative, like, you know, I, I want to make sure it aligns me with like kind of my expertise for creativity and passion and, and that. And so that's kind of how Kids Write for Kids Create a Writing Contest started up. So the idea uh, was to have Ripple Digital Publishing publish the winning story in a writing contest, you know, um, and then have it sail online and with proceeds donated to the winner's charity of choice. So for the first three years of the contest, I, I was doing it on my own with the help of my staff to help me to filter some of the stories. I did put together a judging panel because I wanted to ensure there wasn't any bias. Um, then 2015, I have a friend that work at a charity and she suggested that I should expand the program because it's successful and get some volunteers. And so she introduced me to a website that's called Volunteer Toronto, which is, which is amazing. I posted a few job apps, uh, uh, descriptions, and overnight I had a passion of volunteers, right? So all of a sudden I, I realized I should register Ripple Foundation as an official not-for-profit because I didn't want the volunteers to think they were working this for a private company, right? So that's kind of how Ripple Foundation really got started. Then over time, um, you know, volunteers started to ask, like, you know, who's been funding this? And I said, well, pretty much I've been funding this. And they suggested that, well, you know, why don't you apply for charity? Just like, you know, and I said, wow, like really wasn't really at the back of my at that point. And she goes, well, you know, with the charity, you can ask for donations, you know, um, because you can get tax deductible receipts, you know, and you can also apply for grants. And, you know, we can do a lot more add-on to the foundation. So I thought, okay, well, what the heck? So 2017, I applied for charity status and it was granted in 2018. So today, uh, Ripple Foundation has grown into a nationwide educational charity um, operating 100% volunteer run, you know, thanks to a dedicate of the passionate volunteers we have. And I am privileged to lead changes in fostering creative literacy among children and youth by providing free community programs. Because we believe that the benefit of creative literacy includes building confidence, boosting imagination, promote creative thinking, problem solving. And honestly, I think these skills are going to be the way to pave our future generations. And our goal really is to ensure that every child has the opportunity to develop them. I love that. Boosting imagination. Oof, that's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> well, thanks for sharing that, Ivy. And we'll go into lots of detail around all the ebbs and flows I'm sure they experienced along that journey. Uh, but helpful shifting the journey also from, you know, what is a nonprofit versus a charity and how um, can that, you know, create opportunities or potential barriers into the type of growth that you want, the funding streams, because uh, all of this is so mission critical in this type of work. So we'll dive into that in a bit more detail as well. Um, Megan, over to you. Bring us to the beginning of your adventure and what um, you know brought you to the 519 and, and really what connected you to this incredible mission. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Um, ooh, it's hard to think about the beginning of my journey. I guess I'll start with kind of my, my flow into advocacy. So I was working um, with Kristen Wong Tam at Women Win Toronto. And we were working together to, as you said, train and prepare women to run for municipal office. Through that, I ended up supporting, woo, woo <laughs> um, through that, I ended up supporting Kristen on their uh, 2018 campaign and, um, and then ended up working in their office for a few years. 
Um, then I moved over to the 519, which is Canada's largest 2SLGBTQ plus community center and multi-service agency. Um, and we are a city of Toronto agency as well as a registered charity. So that's um, uh, an interesting dynamic as well. And we're operated by a board of um, management. Can you explain that a little bit for, for some of our listeners, Megan? Like what does an ag- a city of Toronto agency mean? Absolutely. We get operational funding from the city of Toronto for about 14 and a half positions. And then the rest of our staff sit around 65, 70, 70 folks, um, as well as a robust team of volunteers who support all of our programs. And um, so we have a charity arm as well as this like city of Toronto agency arm. And through that, we are through the city of Toronto, we are an association of community centers. So we are coordinated among Um, select community centers around the city of Toronto that are all run by a board of management. So we have bylaws and membership and um, folks who are kind of leading the charge alongside our executive director, Maura Lawless. So (laughs) all that to say is we have a a pretty large team and we run a variety of free programming for 2SLGBTQ plus people, as well as the local community. And that includes like newcomer settlement services, access to justice, housing, peer support and outreach, trans-specific programming, um, early on programming and family services. And that's all done through an anti-oppression, anti-poverty, anti-poverty lens with a trauma-informed approach. And so all of that is to say <laughs> that um, equity and social justice are at the heart of what we do. And we take the lead from the community. So um, if folks are coming together, um, I'm thinking of an example, like through the AIDS crisis, um, the queer community was coming together and looking for uh, legal support around wills so that, um, you know, partners could attend um, in their hospital rooms of of their loved ones who were um, very ill. So that in informed and inspired um, our wills clinic and our legal clinics, which are still offered today. So we're very community-led and community-driven. Amazing. And a, a shameless, selfish plug. And one of my best friends is one of the legal counselors at 519. He volunteers there. So I love the work that you're doing. It's really incredible. Thank you. Thanks so much. And Megan, what brought you to this? What inspires you the most about the work that you're doing right now? Ooh. There's so much that inspires me. Uh, I think the team of staff who work uh, at the 519 are some of the most incredible, tireless, like heartfelt people I've ever had the privilege of working with. Um, There's so much knowledge around equity and harm reduction and social justice and kind of what it truly means to embody inclusive work culture, inclusive environment, and to make sure that truly no community member is left behind. Um, And, you know, and I think I think it's really important, at least for me, that when I think about how much time I'm spending at a job, that I'm making sure that I'm contributing positively to the community, to the world, and trying to leave it better than I found it. 
I love that. And there's so much, I think, to be proud of, when, especially when we work in these spaces. Um, the impact that we all get to feel in the nonprofit space, charitable space around activism is very different than if you are in a more corporate context or in, you know, yes, there's change that you see, but you don't feel it as viscerally. Um, and I think that's, you know, such a privilege um, when it comes to the work that we do. And and Ivy, maybe I'll throw this over to you first. Like, what, what stands out to you when you look at the goals you set out to accomplish with the Ripple Foundation, the progress that you've made towards them. What what is that that tactile you know feeling that that is left in your bones? Um, what are you most proud of when you think of the experiences that, that you've been able to work on um, in developing this charity? Well, I think you know witnessing the the growth of the the, the volunteers, the participants. You know, um, I think that's kind of been amazing. I mean, this fall it's going to be our twelfth year running the Kids Rescue Kids contest. So it's kind of like, wow. you know, thinking, oh, my God, I've been doing this for 12 years, right? You know, <laughs> and time flies. You really don't realize that, right? But it's been it's been an incredible journey, um, you know, to see, like, you know, all the kids participating, you know, throughout the years. And when I first started, like, you know, I had a shy of, like, you know, 200 entries. And now we get over 600, right? So you can see the numbers. Um, like, you know, I mean, to date, we've published 23 titles by, by like, you know, child authors, and we received over 3,800 entries from 1,500 schools throughout Canada. Um, in fact, like, you know, one of the year, uh, this year's winner uh, was a student uh, from Yukon. So it's great to acknowledge that our programs have reached far and wide in Canada. So I think that's pretty amazing. Um, and the fact that, like, you know, our contest doesn't, it, like, they don't get any physical prize, right? So they get the, the winning of becoming um, the fame of being an author, right? <laughs> you know, um, and you know, and and the proceeds gets to donate to their charity of choice, right? So, um, you know, so every year we, we we give them physically this just giant check that they present to their charity of choice, like you know, physically, not monetary. I mean, like prizes, like it's it's in the hundreds of dollars, but it's it's super sweet, like you know, witnessing you know the these students and all having conversations like you know with the people that represent the charity um it's just it's just amazing right and since then we've also expanded our programs to include a free writing workshop that took place pretty much every saturday it's free anyone in, in canada can participate it um and we've launched that in 2018 and we deliver over 250 sessions engaging more than 4,000 participants right and it's growing, right? Um, and in addition to that, we also have an online uh, publication way blog, which uh, it's high school students, where they share their viewing experience with their peers. Um, and the way blog, we publish every Thursday, and we have showcased over 220 blog posts, and it's continued to grow, right? And this May, uh, we had a youth team, which is grade nine to grade 11 students, okay? They have org uh, they've organized um, our annual uh, Express Inspire connect virtual conference which is a, a youth-led uh thing and you know and they focus on youth-led activism discussing social issue affecting canadian youth right and it's all done by youth are participating by youth right so i think it's pretty amazing i mean when i first started ripple like my goal was to inspire creativity in children and make a real impact but look at the numbers and the volunteers and the, the workshop the, the, the student-led initiative like i am both humble and thrilled I mean, it's a tangible affirmation that we've achieved in what we set to do. And I'm immensely proud of what we've achieved, like the success of a program, the growth of community and diversity of our collaborations are testaments to the power of a ripple to create a significant change. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And we applaud that. <laughs> I love that. We got to say the success stories from the rooftops and take a moment to look back. Right? Yes. The journey is long yeah. um, and we're constantly looking back and constantly climbing these mountains. And sometimes, you know, we forget just to take a moment and say like, heck yeah, <laughs> look at all that we've collectively accomplished and the impact that we've made. So I love, love that uh, rigging endorsement, uh, Ivy. Megan, when you look at, at the, you know, your experience, are there any incredibly proud moments or key programs or initiatives that, um, that really shaped uh, your experience and sort of the positivity you feel around the work that you do right now? Yeah, for sure. Um, that's such a tough question to choose. Um, just like one example of that. Um, I guess a couple I'm, if you'd like. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I guess what jumps to mind at the moment is uh, this past fall, so fall 2022, we uh, partnered with Homes First Society to launch a new shelter specifically for LGBTQ refugees, trans women, and non-binary folks. And um, while it's like such a, while it's a very small shelter, it's a very um, momentous and desperately needed step forward in terms of offering affirmative, um, safe shelter spaces for 2SLGBTQ plus folks. Um, you know, this that was the accumulation of like 20 years of advocacy and research and community consultation with LGBTQ BTQ plus folks from across the world, across the sector and like other community partners. So it was such an amazing um, collaboration and coming together of all of these pieces. And so part of that shelter is also um, making sure that we are educating other folks in the housing sector on how to better offer inclusive services um, and affirming practice practices for folks who are entering the shelter system. There are so many barriers for 2SLGBTQ plus people um, who are um, uh, impact greatly by um, homelessness and um, who choose not to maybe go into a shelter space simply because they might be targeted for violence or sexual assault. Um, yeah, it's, you know, there are many reasons why why someone would choose not to do that, but that then prevents folks from accessing a number of other services that are, that a shelter system is like the gateway for. So um, I was part of the launch of that and uh, it's some of the proudest work I've ever done, um, bringing that and, and bring, helping to bring that to life. Um, we also... I guess like more selfishly, um, I'm very proud a, of uh, a food security campaign that we launched uh, just after that alongside um, the shelter announcement, which, um, which goes through the impact of our food security programming over the course of the past year, year and a half. Um, you know, that we were able to showcase that we've helped serve over 200,000 people and helped folks save almost $7 million in food, <laughs> which is like a mind blowing thing to think about. Um, like seeing those numbers and seeing the impact that our volunteers and our food security staff are, are creating and like how that ripples through community is um, really heartwarming, you know, and 
I, I think we're going to see even more um, impacts with when it comes to food and food security through climate change and through inflation and, and lots of other kind of very systemic issues that are on the rise, you know, and it's very, it makes me feel again, very proud to be involved in, in helping to write that course a bit. We could just stop the podcast episode right there. Like, I'm, I'm inspired. We're good. Wow, incredible work happening across our country. Such important work. Um, and, and we intentionally ask this question up front because often so much of this work is happening in the backgrounds, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is um, incredibly demanding. It requires volunteers and staff working round the clock and thinking really creatively with strap budgets, with you know all these different barriers and hurdles. And um, I, I empathize with that as a nonprofit leader myself. But I feel like often, um, you know, we, we start with the challenges. So we intentionally wanted to celebrate these incredible successes at the top of the episode. And now we're going to go into some of the nitty gritty of how we do this work and how we accomplish some of these incredible, important and worthy of this podium kind of goals. So thank you both for, for taking that time to you know, share with us the incredible work that you're doing. So we're, we're so in awe of, of all of this collective work. So Ivy, I want to, to come to you with a bit of a practical question, because I think when founders, you know, and entrepreneurs listening to this episode in particular, they're looking to start a business and they're thinking, okay, what's the difference between a charity? What's a nonprofit? What's a for-profit social enterprise? What's a for-profit not-so-social <laughs> enterprise? There's so many different words and the language can often feel very overwhelming when ultimately you're trying to build a business that does good. Is there a specific way, you know, of, of doing that? And I've seen so many machinations of different types of, of businesses across the country um, with different business structures. So Ripple Foundation is a registered charity. You walked us through a bit of that journey. But where would you recommend to entrepreneurs if they were looking to start and register their organization as a charity? What are those steps? What resources did you leverage to really understand, you know, what a charitable donation might include, the processes around taxes or any other implications that were going to fall as a consequence of being a charity? Where did you look for some of those guides? Well, the thing was like, you know, as mentioned, I kind of did step by step, right? You know, I mean, the thing is like, I'll be honest, it wasn't like back in 2012, I registered charity right away. It, it that's not how it happened. Like I, I actually, I started with like a feel good project and then it kind of just evolved. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it was based on a lot of like, you know, feedback from the volunteers and participants, you know, so it was kind of, you got, you kind of test the water, right. To see whether is this going to work. Okay. If it's going to work, then let's, let's move forward. Let's step forward. Right. So, um, so I, I didn't register uh, ripple foundation, until I landed volunteers, mm. right? You know, because it, that's the first that's the first step. If you have volunteers, then you should register yourself as a, a not for profit. You know, at, at the very very basic to register a not for profit, it's like starting a company. It's relatively easy. Uh, the process is very fast. You know, you just need to have a minimum of three board members, and then you can apply and set up within a week. Okay, voila, done. Okay, now. Charity, however, okay, that's a totally different beast, okay? Um, I mean, you still need to have a minimum of three board members, right? But because with charity, you can um, issue tax deductible receipt, right? So CRA takes a much, much closer look, right? So the applications is much, much more rigorous. Um, you need to identify what category of charities you belong to, like, you know, environmental, social, arts and culture, health, whatever that is. 
And I remember um, I had a hard time choosing at first because I thought, okay, well, my focus is kind of creativity. So is that arts and culture? But then we do offer writing workshops. Is that educational? You know, so in the end, we, 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 we decided to go with educational, right? Um, and then you kind of need to have like a strategy for your charity. That was like a business plan. Like identify what is the purpose of your charity and its offering. I mean, remember when you were applying for not-for-profit, you didn't have to tell anybody what we do. You could just register and then figure out, out later, right? But no, with, with charity, you got to figure all that up front before you even go and apply for it, right? Um, and, and the application process is much, much longer, okay? Because CRA goes through everything with a fine-tooth comb. I remember we, uh, I, we started the process in 2017, me actually writing another strategy and choosing other kinds of stuff, right? And we didn't really submit it until probably the middle. And we received status, uh, like, you know, approval in 2018, right? So the whole process was about a year. Um, and I did have a lawyer to help me to navigate. So it's, it's more costly, you know, because the thing is, you don't want to not fill up the application properly, have it rejected only to do it again, right? So you want, you know, there's one shot, you want to make it right. So, um, so having like, you know, a lawyer or an account with someone to help you to navigate the process with a little bit of experience. Okay. I, I totally do recommend that. Um, CRA does prioritize their approval, but if your charity belong to like a disaster relief category, you probably get approved faster. Right. You know, because our, our, our is a charity is not health. It's not life or death. Right. So maybe that could be the reason why it took a little bit longer. Right. So you have to take that into consideration as well. Right. Um, so I think that is really, really the main, main, main difference. You know, I mean, they say that like, you know, uh, having charity has a lot of uh, advantages. You can attract more donors because you get this tax deductible receipt and you can apply for grants, you know, so these are some of the, 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 the positive aspect, but you know what, you can still get donations for, as an offer prop as well. You just can't give taxable receipts. Okay. That's the only thing, right. You know, you, you can still take on donations. So it's only on the side of the recipient. I mean, don't think that, Oh, I'm not for profit. I, I don't qualify for donation. That's not true. Okay. It's just that you can, it's just that you just can't give them a tax deductible receipt. That's, that really is the, the, the main difference. Right. So I would suggest take, baby steps, like, you know, um, and really kind of figure out what is it that you really want mm. to do. And I think in that exploration, are you actually seeking to develop a business that has a charitable mandate or are you trying to do good yes. through a vehicle, which is building a business, but that might not necessarily right. be charitable. Like that definition, I think has been a really interesting learning for me. Even I've run a nonprofit and That's a charity right. and the scope of service mm-hmm. or work or, um, you know, offerings that you're trying to give back to a community, mm-hmm. all of that impacts whether or not you are aligning to a charitable mandate versus, you know, maybe potentially more of a nonprofit mandate or even a for-profit mandate. Uh, so lots of great research yes. to do and great recommendation to seek legal counsel if that's something that is available to you. There's also a tremendous number of resources online. We've got some in our business owner's mm-hmm. toolbox that explain the different types of business structures. Um, and uh, as you look at different certifications or, you know, there's even additional mm-hmm. layers on top of that um, that might appear to be complicated. But to your point, baby steps every step of the way, right? <laughs> Yeah. And Megan, in your work, do you have advice for entrepreneurs, leaders, you know, aspiring founders who are looking to really build this strong communications content foundation wrapped around who they are, 
you know, what it means to maybe be a nonprofit or a charity to them and maybe some sort of competitive advantage when people, you know, in the community right now are looking to um, more thoughtfully spend their money in different locations or for particular types of companies. And, and when that um, spirit of giving back might be more top of mind to, you know, those who are purchasing various and various things. Um, can that strong brand really help throughout this process? Is is there a storytelling piece that you really focus at the 519? Walk us through from a content standpoint. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, short answer, yes. <laughs> strong, <laughs> there we go. strong branding, very, very yeah. key. Um, kind of as Ivy was saying, um, we want to drill down to our mission statement and you need to get very, 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 very crystal clear on your mission. Make sure you have like a five minute elevator pitch um, for funders and donors using clear, concise language and like make sure you're including your ultimate dream goal, the vision for the end game. Like. In a, in a land where you would be like, perfect, my charity, my nonprofit is no longer needed. The world is uh, as it should be. You know, everything is beautiful that. and wonderful. <laughs> um, for that. <laughs> utopia. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, and so you, you want to yeah. be identifying the problem that you're trying to solve. Um, and if there's data points that go along with that, excellent. Be sure to incorporate that as part of your, you know, your comms. Do you want to see a world without hunger, a world where two SLGBTQ plus people can live authentically free of persecution? Do you want to create pro, uh, provocative art reflecting the diversity of the community? Like whatever it is, drill down and get super, super, super specific. You'll also want to um, like think about why your charity is special. Why, um, you know, why do we need your charity, your nonprofit now today? What, like, are there other programs or services that already exist? And how can you be different from them? Like, how can you differentiate yourself? And what's your defining feature? That will help um, get really clear on some of your branding. And like, if you have volunteers, if you have a um, a board of directors or governance, please, 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 please do not do this kind of work in a vacuum. Make sure you're bringing your audience, like who you're trying to reach into the fold. Speak to your employees or volunteers, speak to your leadership team, you know, share your ideas with some trusted folks because collaboration will ultimately lead to stronger ideas and, um, and help bring more people on board for your mission. In addition, I think it's really important, and this is, again, maybe selfishly, try and bring a communication strategy or strategist into the fold quite early in the process. I think people really underestimate the value of um, proactive communication instead of reactive communication, because you can really, um, you know, make friends and win allies when you're cohesively, concisely telling your story from the very beginning. And, mm. uh, and a comms professional will help you do that and help you get drill down to get these like very specific, um, you know, desires and needs and problems out and clear. Um, you know, ideally you want like one sentence that you can tell people that really succinctly speaks to who you are, why you do what you do, and what you want. 
I love that. And, and I think that authenticity in listening to your audience and connecting to all these different stakeholders um, ensures not only that you're going to make an impact, but also um, really ensures that you're doing this for the right reason, right? Like if you're trying to create this impact, we see, especially in this space, um, you know, some of this savior kind of mentality or positioning charities and nonprofits that might not be doing this type of work, but for the sake of optics, et cetera. Um, and, and that's challenging that there's so much noise potentially out there, this authenticity in the intention behind the business, this North star of what is actually going to be achieved if we are successful, that this problem goes away um, and really listening to your community. So you know what they need and not making assumptions um, potentially from your personal space, from your lens, um, and really understanding the community you're trying to serve. Those are excellent um, sort of foundational business elements, but from a communication standpoint, um, is so essential when you're in those first, first building blocks. Um, Ivy, I want to talk to you a little bit about the volunteers and the structure of your business as well, because this can be very challenging. Even businesses that can hire, you know, paid full-time staff are having a hard time navigating um, and finding talent and, you know, getting their talent to support these various mandates, um, especially in 2023. This has been such an immense challenge. Um, you have successfully brought in so many volunteers. You've, you've built this company 100% volunteer run. The programs are also free of charge. What has that process been like for you? How do you hire and onboard these volunteers? Where have you found them? Have there been any lessons learned in the ebbs and flows of who sticks around, who might not be the best fit? Um, and, and what did you really need from an operational level to set this type of structure up? Because you're not you know, employing these people per se full time, like you wouldn't be in an organization. Yeah, well, obviously it's challenging. Right. <laughs> so uh, one of the things is like I run Ripple by utilizing what I consider as like an entrepreneurial, agile, nimble mm. approach. Like so that. unlike larger organizations, we're not bogged down by bureaucracies and board meetings. Right. So if there's something that needs to get done, we'll get it done. Like, you know, I don't need to set three weeks in advance because I need to have meeting with so and so and get approval and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, as, as, as pretty much a key decision maker, I can make efficiency, strategize and plan and really execute our programs. Right. So I discuss my ideas with the board members, you know, um, and then I draw on resources as needed to adjust and refine the execution. I mean, it also helps the fact that because of uh, my own personal business and the background that I have. So, um, you know, I so I, I have a lot of resources from that aspect, you know, from digital, you know, and my knowledge in the marketing and, and all that and all the know how. So I think that has really, really made life easier for myself. Right. Um, and the thing is, because we have four different programs and each program requires a different resource and strategies to operate effectively. So um, so I can go down with some of the, the higher level stuff. Right. So one of the things, the first thing I always like to say is like it's how we hire. Okay, who you bring in is probably going to be the most important thing, right? I mean, people think that like, you know, oh my God, it's going to be really tough to hire. You're right. It is very tough to hire the right people, even even like full-time job or volunteer, right? So we have, um, we post ads. There are websites that's specifically for volunteers, okay? Volunteer Toronto is what I mentioned. There's also Charity Village, right? And every single provinces like BC, you know, what have not, have a similar site like Volunteer Toronto. So if you hire uh, like, you know, volunteers in BC, I think there's a volunteer BC, right? You know, uh, Vancouver, like, you know, for that matter, that type of thing. So it really depends in terms of where you're trying to look for people. 
So, you know, you want to go to those geographic, like, you know, web portals, you know, and po- do your own post job posting, right? And what we do is we uh, we have HR, which is amazing. We do, we do a two-step hiring process. So HR does the first interview to qualify and narrow down to the top three candidates. And then whoever is going to be managing this person uh, does the second interview. Because it's very important that, you know, whoever is managing and working with these volunteers, right, needs to have that synergy. So, of course, they're going to they should be involved in the hiring process. You know, I mean, who likes to have someone just dump on the lab and saying that, hey, you know, this is going to be, you know, someone you have to manage. Right. You know, <laughs> um, I mean, I think this I think this is kind of common sense, even if, it, if, it, if a normal business. Right. So I think that's very important. Right. Um and then once you hire them, it's onboarding. Like, you know, so what do we, what, how do you, how do you set them up, right? You know, you can't just hire them and expect them to read your mind and just, you know, run with it, right? You know, because nobody reads minds, okay? Um, so what we do is we try to outline like, you know, clear process and procedures. So depending on the role, for example, if we're hiring a, a, a writing workshop facilitators to help us to facilitate um, like, you know, uh, 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 Saturday workshops, right? We have an uh, online guideline, like a website that they can access that has all the instructions, lesson plan, toolkits, and everything. And we have a, you know, a, a workshop managers that will provide online training. And they also get invited, you know, on one of the workshops as, as a, you know, as a, as a witness to see how it's been done before they dive into it, right? So we try to prov- provide them with all the training that's necessary for them to do the work, right? So it really depends. So every single job at posting is different, right? So for students that writes for us, you know, we actually have professional editors that work with them. You know, we interview them, discuss what topic they're going to write. You know, it's not by submission, right? So it really depends every single role. We try to have things outlined, you know, before, like, so they, when, they, when we hire them on the job description, they know exactly what they need to do, and we kind of show them the ropes, right? Then the other thing is communication collaborations. We utilize Google Workspace as our main tool, um, thanks to the free account that Google provides to charity, uh, which is great. So we do, I have a lot of Google Drive. <laughs> we share schedule, calendars, documents, and it really allows real-time collaborations and transparency, right? You know, um, as what Megan said earlier, you know, you have to collaborate, right? You work better as a team, you know, um, you know more ideas is better than one idea, right? Um, and also training empowerment. We know we talked about the onboarding, the training. And one of the things we do is that we empower our managers to make decisions. So like, you know, so people don't always call it, oh, should we do this? No, 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 I, I'm not making decisions. You're the manager, you have to make decisions, right? So we do empower our volunteers to make decisions, make their own call um, so that they feel like empowered. Okay, I think that's very, very important. Because like, you know, these are adults, like, and even with students, you know, we empower them to make the difference, you know, to, to make decisions, you know, we say, yes, you could do this, you could do this, you know, it's up to you, how, however you think, you know, how would you want to react to, right? So I think that's very, very uh, important. I mean, in fact, some of our board members start as volunteers, they move into management roles, hmm. they have shown passion, dedication to, uh, for Ripple Foundation more than three years, and we invite them to be board members. Amazing. So our board members are all working board members, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they really roll up their sleeves, you know, and they dive right in into whatever role that they're playing, right? So it's really not different than, you know, onboarding in a, you know, full-time team, et cetera. You're treating That's volunteers right. very similarly in this life cycle to make sure they are set up, they're interviewed, they are thoroughly vetted, and yeah. you, and 
that has really supported the longevity of, of these volunteers, their experience, their alignment, um, and making sure that they are around for the long haul as well, because the churn of volunteers can also be so um, intensive, right? Yes, you're absolutely right. And the thing is, like, we know we constantly refine how we gather data. So we are always asking, like, you know, for, like, you know, volunteers that facility workshop, we always ask them to provide feedback. So they add, you know, so we actually collect all the feedback and we tweak the lesson plans and how we operate based on their feedback. Right. So, for example, um, I know that when we first started back in 2015, like, you know, we used to have... um, a, a, a Facebook private group for the volunteers, right? But over time, people are dropping off Facebook, right? So we now use Slack, right? So like, you know, instead, right? So, I mean, so this is one example that, you know, I mean, we're not, we're, we're, we're not trees, we're not planted on the ground. Like, you know, we can move and, you know, if there's a better software, we'll use a better software, right? You know, so, and these are all feedback from the volunteers, right? And obviously, I think that one of the things that everybody does, um, every company uses, is we leverage a lot of online tools. Um, online tools really, really uh, help us to work more efficiency, you know, and operational activities. Like, you know, and there is like a lot of tool, even just for um, the, the, in the charity sector. Like, you know, like Canada Helps, you know, we, we use online Canada donations. That, yeah. I know, and Canada Helps is amazing, right? You know, it's, it's great. There's TechSoup, you know, TechSoup, you know, you, uh, you know, they offer discount, you know, for charities, you know, uh, for online subscription on some of the software, you know, and stuff, right? So there's Zoom, for example, if you want to get a exactly. discount on Zoom, all these exactly. platforms. So there's all these, there's, there's all these wonderful stuff where you just have to, to look, you know, yeah. um, and it's there. Right. You know, I mean, as a volunteer myself, like I, you know, I think intrinsic factors are the most what's the most motivating thing for anybody. Mm. Right. So you want everybody to feel good about themselves and what they do, you know. And so that's why we empower our volunteers to perform their tasks and trust them and right to make decisions. And I find that this approach is pretty much always the best. OK, because it okay. makes them feel good. Right. And I, I love harnessing passion, but creating structure, right? Because if you just put a bunch of passion in a room without any structure, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of different moving parts. So I think, yeah, as you're entering into you know your new venture, thinking about that structure, what's going to enable the people, both within your organization and the community at large, to access that support, structure is such an important part of this. Um, and often, in charities and nonprofits where funding can be a challenge, um, leveraging some of those digital tools is not top of mind. You know, things are expensive. It's hard to invest in some of these platforms, but we need to treat these spaces um, as thoroughly as we can, leveraging, you know, discounts and things where we can, but we need that sophistication of the technology um, and of that that infrastructure um, to make sure that it's a scalable venture as well, to make sure that that mandate is really scaled. Um, Megan, I would love your perspective. So not that you necessarily do the fundraising per se, but how do you convey, um, you know, you mentioned 14% comes from the city, but the rest, I imagine all has to be fundraised through uh, 519. How do you convey the story to funders or, you know, as ambassadors of the brand? Is it everyone's role to be out in the community identifying funding prospects? How does that work being on a team that has to consistently fundraise? Yeah, so I guess... Um, the theme is collaboration, right? It's so, so key. So um, my communications team works very, very closely with our philanthropy department. We have kind of monthly check-ins to make sure that, um, you know, we're meeting targets and that we can uh, pivot to strategy if it's not kind of showing um, the impact of what we want to be doing. 
You know, um, my team chats regularly with coordinators, managers, and directors of all sorts of different departments to make sure that we are um, telling that story and making, yeah, and making sure that we are showcasing uh, like impact stories, particularly around like staff, volunteers, and program participants. Um, and that can get like very engaging personal stories out of people. You know, I think it goes back to speaking about the authenticity piece and, and making sure that we are as an organization approachable and, um, and kind of like putting our money where our mouth is that way and making sure that we're showing off, um, this like, yeah, this important impact and kind of how, how we are supporting community and, and how, um, we are felt among community. And so like making fundraising feel like very personal and very authentic, you know, and I think our donors really like to see themselves reflected inside of that storytelling. You know, I think more and more people want to feel very value aligned with their brand, regardless of whether it's a nonprofit, a charity or a for-profit agency. I think we're all really looking to, to feel value aligned and how we, you know, donate or spend money. Um, we also want to coordinate a visual identity through a lot of our fundraising campaigns. And this helps create like a cohesive look for the campaign supporting, you know, the broader theme of what that could be. Um, I guess I'm thinking of an example right now, our end of year campaign through December. Um, the theme that we came up with was full circle moments. And we were able to share impact stories from community, community members who came to the center as a youth and now come to the center as an older adult person, um, you know, and we've kind of been with them their whole lives. And so sharing the, those kind of stories, I think really helps people understand the long lasting impact of what, you know, inclusive, safe, affirming spaces can do for for people and their well-being as individuals. You know, I also think about um, folks who attended our early on programming as kids and now are bringing their families. So like um, they're, they're um, pushing forward and they are helping to like build and continue the community as well. You know, um, from like a data driven point, um, we want to be observing engagement and tracking um, the impact of our digital outreach strategies and noting when things are picking up and why things are picking up quickly. And then, you know, we want to repeat that again and again and again and make sure that um, engagement is still up. So, you know, if more folks are opening our newsletter on Thursday at 3 p.m., we want to be sending out more communications on Thursdays at 3 p.m. instead of Fridays at 5 p.m. when people might not want to be opening emails and opening, you know, we want to be we want to be working with people's natural flow. And so we use data to support that. That can be very technical, but I know as Ivy was saying, Google Analytics offers free, um, offers free accounts for charities. And so that's something complicated, but kind of easier to access. You know, we've noticed that our, as, a, as the 519, we've noticed our advocacy driven posts or deeply personal posts see a spike in donations. So we've, you know, noted that and clocked that and making sure that we are working with our philanthropy team to, to create these like harmonized moments, you know, as, um, as, uh, an identity based kind of organization, we also, 
understand, you know, when people might want to be donating to a 2SLGBTQ plus organization throughout the course of the year. So like we take June, for example, Pride Month, um, and lots of folks are naturally um, like reaching out and wanting to to support um, queer and 2SLGBTQ plus organizations. And so I think considering um, the structure of the calendar year as no matter what your charity is, there's probably a month or a day of significance that aligns with the value mission of what you're trying to do. And then I would, again, like harmonize those two things. You know, if there's a day to end world hunger and your, your charity focuses on food security, that might be a very good alignment. Yeah, so there's like lots of different tools, um, be it data and creative driven storytelling when merged together, um, help create very strong fundraising campaigns. There's there's a seasonality to every type of fundraising cycle. And this is one of the opportunities, but also one of the challenges, I think, in working in nonprofit and charity spaces, that it's not the case you can necessarily just sell more of X. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a shoe retailer and I need to sell more shoes. It's not that linear. Um, but in, you know, in my context, I leverage private sector, you know, large corporate sponsors, and that's the way that we bring in revenue at Startup Canada. There's a seasonality to that and understanding when they are reviewing their budgets and understanding the types of investment they want to make, looking at their priorities. There's so much depth of thought required in identifying the right partner, donors, their own spending cycle around the holidays. Does that make more sense to potentially be doing donor cycles or are people already buying so many Christmas gifts <laughs> that they might not have the purchasing power there? You know, Understanding these consumer trends um, and, and really understanding your funding audience is mission critical. We know funding for every type of founder is the number one challenge that, that they experience and, and that doesn't change in the early stages or later. Um, but particularly in nonprofit charity, this has been the biggest learning I'd say for myself in being really thoughtful, very strategic and thinking in the long term as well of how you're going to grow these mandates, leveraging uh, I mean, all of that insight that continues to build over time. So really appreciate getting both of your perspectives as well uh, from a nuanced fundraising cycle and, and the impact that communications really has on that. So Ivy, in your experience, were there certain resources that you found helpful along the way to help fundraise for Ripple Foundation? Where does your funding come from? Well, obviously, we do apply for grants, right? You know, looking for the right match. You know, uh, that hasn't that has been somewhat successful, not as successful as what we liked. You know, because there are challenges because we're relatively small. Um, but one of the things I realized is that, um, like, we can't do what the bigger charity like, you know, organization does. Like, you know, we'll never do a gala. We'll never do lottery. We'll never, like, there are a lot of stuff that we'll never do. So we really have to think outside the box. So one of the things we did do was that uh, two, three years ago, we launched our own uh, merch store using an on-demand company called Printful. So we do sell T-shirt, tote bag, prints, throw pillow, things like that. Those are all print on demand so that, like, it doesn't require us any upfront cash for inventory and like that. So like, you know, we, it's like a revenue split, right? So you get like, you know, a little bit of the revenue if something gets sold, right? So, and all that proceeds will go directly to our programs, right? So that was something that we found. So we're constantly looking for innovative ways in terms of how, you know, to do, uh, you know, fundraising because we are in a very uh, different sector because the thing is like, you know, we're not in the, the health, like the life or death, like, you know, situations. We're not like, you know, the society, the poverty. We're not that, okay? We are in a situations where like, you know, it's educational, right? It's for it's for the kids. 
Um, you know, so it like, you know, people, pe- like people don't see us as an emergency, like, you know, in terms of that, which I, which I understand. So that's why sometimes we have really have to think outside box, you know, when you do. And the thing is like, and, and in fact, um, we're actually hiring like you know, a fundraiser, <laughs> event coordinator, you know, so because you know, we are starting to take a close look to see, you know, what other, you know, methods are there. So we do have a job posting for this. So if anyone that's listening that is uh, interested, you know, go to our website, you know, go to Charity Village or Volunteer Toronto, you'll find a posting for that. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. That's great. Um, and as we all know, you know, there are very few resources often when it comes to um, uh, nonprofits and charities. And this is one of the, the pain points that I think comes up so often. You know, we have these massive mandates. We are always feeling strapped for time and energy and people and budget. And um, there are a lot of, of, of those hurdles that I think we uniquely are faced with. Um, can, can strong you know, communication strategies or efforts um, on your end, uh, Megan, have you found that that's been able to almost enable your organization to do more with less? Like, have there been any any tools or any specific um, processes or things that you have implemented that have really helped you work with such a large mandate and, and arguably not a tremendous amount of resources? For sure. Um, I think being um, intentional with how you're working and what you're communicating can go a very long way. You know, it kind of circles back to what I was saying maybe at the beginning of the podcast around proactive versus reactive um, communications. So you want to make sure that you're communicating the work that you're doing as you're doing it. Um And I know it can feel challenging to tell the story versus just actually doing the work, but those two things impact one another. So if I'm sharing kind of what we're doing and the impact that we're making in the world while also continuing to work towards our like end goal dream world, then we can invite more people into the mission, onto the process, like invite them into the stream as we're heading, as opposed to um, working away kind of in the silo and not sharing the impact of the work with our audience. So there's that kind of very critical piece. I think overall communications is often thought to be um, maybe like a last minute kind of thing. Oh yeah, we need to promote that thing. Oh yeah, um, we want to be you know, inviting people to this thing, we're launching a book, whatever it might be. Um, We want to make sure that we're giving uh, our communications team enough time to to create thoughtful and engaging, you know, outreach. And so through that, I think we want to kind of, as I was saying, showcase impact through storytelling, be it through something like testimonials or personal stories or, you know, sharing like why a volunteer might want to be working with you, why a board member has wanted to join your team, you know, even... um, even something from the founder would be a very good thing. Like if you're just starting out, um, you know, and that can bring a a very personal detail to your communication strategy, you know, and you can explore um, creative ways to share that story. Um, 
you know, there's something to consider that you have to reintroduce yourself to your audience as it grows. So, and this is most important on like digital social media platforms is as you gain new followers, you want to make sure that you're continuing to introduce yourself to them, making sure that everyone knows who you are, what you stand for, what your mission is, why you do what you do. So that's like a very critical thing. Um, when it comes to strong communications, I think that can definitely impact recruitment and how, um, and if people uh, employed feel empowered. Um, and I think that's something that's like also kind of very critical, especially in the nonprofit like charity be, charity world, is that you want to make sure that you you are fostering a work environment in which people can thrive. You know. Um, I've worked in a lot of nonprofits and sometimes it can feel very life or death as Ivy's saying when it's not, um, you know, and the work will always be there, but we want to make sure that we're taking care of the people who are supporting the work of the organization, right? We want to make sure that we are, you know, aligning our values both internally and externally. And I think that can be shared through, storytelling and shared through like word of mouth. Mm, love that. So to, to kind of conclude the episode, I would love to get both of your perspectives on the change that we as leaders need to foster and maybe some changes we need to see in the nonprofit and charity space. Um, if you could identify one thing to start, one thing to stop, and one thing to continue in the nonprofit or charity space, what would those three things be? Ivy, maybe I'll start with you. Um, well, speaking from my experience, um, I think the nonprofit space need to start fostering uh, a cultural of mutual support, uh, particularly for smaller mm. charities. I mean, it can be challenging mm. for small organizations like ourselves to secure funding despite having impactful, transparent, and efficiency program. Uh, because this is because mm. it's lack of connection or of visibility, and it's not because of lack of merit or potential impact. Right. So this is one of the things, um, you know, we don't have any like, you know, really like our board, like I said, our board members are working board members. We don't have any big names, any reputable like, you know, CEOs, maybe big companies, whatever. Right. So we are ordinary people like you, myself. Right. And I think large organizations like nonprofit organizations, funding buddies and, and corporations could do more to uplift smaller charities. Um, a good example mm. is uh, our collaboration with the Warner Street. I mean, Warner Street is also um, a charity, um, and they recognize the value of our work, and they invite us to deliver writing workshops at the events, you know, and they give us a booth to showcase a program, you know, um, and they give us a little bit of an honorarium. And, like, you know, it's small acts like this, you know, that can really help us out because it gives us bigger exposure, credibility, and resources, right? So I think that would be that would be a good start. Um the stop part, on the flip side, I believe sectors should stop overlooking small, smaller nonprofit due to our size of lack of connections. I mean, the thing is that mm-hmm. we are small, um, you know, um, we don't have any staff. So we have the time when people go, oh, who do you have like working? Well, we're all volunteers, right? And people kind of, wow, like all volunteers, right? All of a sudden, you know, I mean, I've, I've been told um, that, you know, people don't feel confident because you don't have staff working there right but we've been doing this for how many years now right so um you know so i think there i think i think there's that um because the worth and impact of an organization should not be determined solely by size or the extent of its network but the value 
it provides to the community serve, right? Um, and continue, what should they continue? I think like any other business, nonprofit needs to continue to adapt to new technology. I think this is a, a key thing. Um, these can help us to reach our audience more effectively, streamline our operations and measure our impact more accurately. And I mean, but let's be honest, it's a lot of work. Okay, we need to be constant state of learning and evolving alongside tech. You know, AI came out and is everybody using AI? Yeah, of course, you know, you dive into AI, learn it and see how to make it more like, you know, uh, increase your productivity, right? Um, you know, so the rewards of learning new software and stuff, it's, it's, it's really well worth it, right? And I think, you know, um, nonprofits should continue to con develop and nurture culture of diversity and inclusion. Uh, to ensure that we tap into a wide range of perspective experience from our volunteers and the communities we serve, because ultimately enable us to make a more significant and informed impact, right? So I think that's kind of what we should really continue to be Great answers. Saying <laughs> it. I like it. Megan, what's your stop, start, continue? Ooh, I think Ivy's were so great. Okay. Um, <laughs> I guess I'll jump off with where Ivy ended, and I think mm -hmm. that um, more nonprofits need to start incorporating um, diversity, equity, inclusion practices, both externally and internally, um, and making sure that you're investing as much into your staff as you are into your external kind of image. You know, mm -hmm. there I think there's a reputation of burnout in the nonprofit space you know, and I, I would love to see more nonprofits like foster more work-life balance with their employees. You know, a lot of the work we do is deeply critical and important, and it's really hard to remember to fill our cups so that the work is sustainable and long-term. Um, we have been on that journey. I love that, that note, Megan. That's such an important point. Yeah, right. We all want to, we all want to be continuing to work together to the, to the end goal. Um, hmm. In terms of what we should stop doing as a nonprofit, I guess is it's always really easy to feel limited by your budget and your finances. And I think really tapping into um, creative ways to get things done um, and like capitalizing on either um, a diversity of volunteer skill sets or um, diverse staff assets, like getting to know the people that you work with in order to um, efficiently use the skills that folks have brought to the table. So like maybe, um, and that also speaks to more collaboration as well. Like maybe your one of your volunteers is um, also a photographer on the side, you know, and maybe they can take photos at your events and you can build a catalog of, you know, captivating photos that you can share uh, through your social strategy. You know, uh, I think I think we should stop feeling um you know, limited by financial resources and start thinking creatively about how we can better utilize the resources we already have. You know, all that to say is fundraising is very important and please donate to your local charities. <laughs> and continue fundraising. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I think um, 
I think we need to uh, kind of echoing what Ivy was saying. I think we all need to continue to lift each other up and to make sure that we are sharing good work across sectors. You know, I think it's, I think people sometimes believe there's a scarcity mindset, but when you are uplifting other organizations, you might tap into a brand new audience that you've yet to discover. And, you know, if you're a smaller organization or a larger organization, that can work both ways. You know, maybe identify other smaller or larger charities that are value aligned with what you do and elevate that work. This can also be true um, for like diversity, equity, inclusion practices as well. You know, maybe there's an indigenous business or an indigenous author that you want to uplift or like we have to incorporate other folks into into our audience to make sure that through solidarity, there's equity in our practices. Mm, amazing. Those are all excellent. And I will give a plus one <laughs> to every single one of those comments. <laughs> Definitely agree. Definitely agree. Um, any final thoughts, any comments, calls to action? Maybe it's on the fundraising side. Maybe we, where can we do, donate or support more organizations? <laughs> Why don't we wrap up with that? Megan, where do we go? We go to the 519.org slash donate and yeah. we can volunteer. We can donate money. We can learn more about the good work that we do. So please do check us out. The 519.org. Amazing. And I do. Uh, well, Ripplefoundation.ca for a slash donation. I mean, our site, the navigation is very simple. There's a big donate button at the top right. Nice and clear. It's very easy to clear, um, just as a few final thoughts, like, you know, for the entrepreneurs as listening to this, I think if you're starting um, to do a not-for-profit charity, just make sure that it's a cause you really believe in and that you're really passionate about. Mm. Um, this way your work feels like joy, both mission, than a job. Because like, I find immense pleasure in my work and it feels more like play to work. I think that's very important because like, you know, you are volunteering your time to do this, right? So find something that you really truly believe in. I also believe that I'm a firm believer that I think everybody has a unique set of skills. And I think it's incredible gratifying to apply these skills for the greater good. So donating your time is truly priceless. Okay, so I'm grateful for having the opportunity to collaborate with many talented individuals who have generously donated a time to a cause, such as our Kids Right for Kids judges and illustrators, you know, who has due to designs our stunning book covers and illustrators who help us to do editorial illustration for our blogs, you know, and stuff, right? Um, you know, I think they feel good. We, we, we want to make them feel good, you know, and they're helping us out, which is great, right? And, you know, and don't hesitate to give your idea a goal. Like if you don't try, the outcome is guaranteed, nothing mm. will happen. Because I remember when I first started the writing contest, um, I mean, I actually had the idea back in 2011. It took me a year to kind of on and off, should I, should I not, like, boop, 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 like, you know. And like, you know, before I, 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 I really like, you know, put my mindset, okay, let's, let's, let's do it. Because like, you know, even in speaking with so many people, you're going to have people that's going to say like, where are you going to get the entries? And you're going to be saying, yeah, it's a great idea. Go for it. You're going to have people telling you like either way. Right. So, um, I mean, I, the first year I, we, uh, when I first started contest, the first three months, I did not receive one single entry. I was freaking out and I thought, oh my God, like, like this is a complete flop. But I persisted. I continued to send out mailers, expanded my email list. 
you know, and I received my first entry just weeks before the deadline. And by the time the contest oh. end, we nearly had like you no know, 200 entries. So the takeaway wow. is just give your best shot, you know, and like, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, although the process can be very complicated and time consuming, but the impact you create, it's immense. Okay. It, it's, it's, it's a good journey. You know, uh, it's good to have a vision. It's good to have a plan. Just don't set rigid expectation. Enjoy the journey, cherish the people you meet, appreciate what you learn. This mindset will help you avoid unnecessary disappointment and just foster a really joyous journey, right? And just remember, every successful charity starts with someone taking the first step, so. <laughs> there we go. We'll leave you with that, <laughs> listeners. Thank you so much, Megan. Thank you You're so welcome. much, Ivy. Um, this has been an amazing time and thanks for sharing your experiences Thank you. Us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us on the Startup Women podcast, where we are committed to telling the stories of women entrepreneurs and uncovering actionable advice that goes beyond the surface level. The Startup Women podcast is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles. Visit startupcan.ca to explore the Startup Women flagship program and access advisory support and free resources. Be sure to check out the show notes to access important links, resources, and information that we mentioned during today's episode. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to another episode next month.